This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Richard Phillips. We're going to have a really interesting show talking about growth investing with a, uh, a gentleman focused on growth and, and active management of those type of portfolios. Uh, but, Professor, we're going to get some commentary. We've got a lot of commentary from the Fed officials. You're talking about inflation. Anything you're thinking about as we as we close the week here? Uh, yeah, most uh, most definitely. I mean, uh, uh, let, let's just talk a little bit about Today, uh, clearly, uh, the surge in uh, COVID cases in Europe really did have an impact on today's markets. I mean, it brought the long bond down from 160 down to the low 150s oil, down almost 5% um, WTI. And mainly, uh, you know, it's a matter of getting boosters, really. First of all, getting vaccinated, but then getting boosters uh, and, uh, Israel killed its second wave with uh, boosters to all eligible d- adults, and that's supposed to be now okayed for the United States perhaps today. I think that'll put an end to the Delta wave that should, uh, you know, uh, rebalance this. I mean, uh, otherwise it's been remarkable. Again, we, we, we've had the suffering of the reopening stocks and then the value stocks. Um, you know, earlier this year from last September, when the growth stocks hit their high, we almost had a 20 percent correction of value versus growth. Well, that has virtually all disappeared. again. <laughs> I looked at the relative graph of uh, Russell growth and value, and they're virtually at the peak now that they were on a relative basis in September of 2020, um, again, being pushed up by uh, the developments on 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 COVID, uh, uh, you know, I still think that value is going to be the outperformer over the next twelve months as people search for yield, um, because I do think it is uh, getting closer to the time when the Fed is going to have to act m- uh, more aggressively. Um, I was on Bloomberg yesterday, and and uh, uh, there was a lot of headlines that were generated from my my discussion there. On, uh, on the Fed uh, needing to do that. One more bad inflation report, uh, which will be probably coming, which is going to be coming on December uh, 10th and then the, the meeting on December 15th. Uh, if it, it is anything as what we saw in November, uh, they will have to speed up the taper. Uh, it's all clear until the Fed gets more aggressive. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, inflation is basically good for the stock market. Uh, the, the, the demand is there. The margins are there. They're passing along these extra increases in prices. You, uh, you're starting to see some of those Fed officials. I saw one of the headlines saying uh, Mr. Waller from St. Louis, who, who works with Buller, has been one of our, our guests. It seems like the St. Louis contingent is on your, your faster taper trajectory. Yeah, finally, they've come along, you know. We've talked to uh, Mr. Boyd, uh, uh, Jim, many times on the show, as you mentioned. Uh, and St. Louis uh, used to be, back in the 70s and 80s, looking at the money supply and, and being an inflation hawk. And, uh, uh, you know, we uh, a year ago, I remember us interviewing Jim, and I was trying to get him on that bandwagon. He was reluctant to go, but was willing to think about it. I'm glad that both of them, um, and both of them are really quite good economists, uh, are are now among the forefront of those pushing, and many will. I mean, it it it, it almost was a tipping point with that last CPI. Uh, if we get another one that is bad. Uh, or above expectations, there'll be no question that that will be the tipping point. Uh, Powell could not uh, hold out any, any longer against that. Against that, we, of course, also have the drama of not yet 
picking the new Fed chairman is supposed to be on the cusp of that decision. Obviously, there's a battle be, you know, between um, probably the progressives and the Democratic Party that want uh, Brainerd and, and those more moderates that want Powell. I still think Powell will get the nod. Uh, I think it's politically astute for for him to do it. He's still the favorite, but by about two to one odds in the in the betting markets. Uh, we should by next week, uh, probably maybe by Thanksgiving. I, I think it's it's uh, very possible we will know uh, whether uh, Powell is uh, renewed or not, or whether Brainerd is uh, the new Fed chairman. Um, so that will obviously be a, a, another uh, development to watch. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like with today's politically charged environment, um, you, you could very easily see how the the dem the dem say there's no way we're going to keep Powell, who's the Republican. We're going to have to bring we have to bring in our own person. Uh, do you think Brainerd would, in the event that she does get the nod, that she would actually do anything differently than a Powell Fed? So, well, I've often said uh, on on this show and on the networks that. Um, uh, Powell is the most dovish, really, Fed chair I've seen. And uh, I, I don't know if he's wrangling for renomination and then will turn more hawkish. Um, uh, uh, Brainerd, I think, is basically viewed as more dovish than Powell, which is not what we need right now to fight inflation. Very honestly, although there might be a temporary thing, oh, more money, more money. I think it could ignite inflationary fears that really then turn against the long bond. Um, and um, that would certainly uh, put some sort of a dent uh, in the market. So as we've often been saying, it's going to be it's circumstances that will direct the Fed. It's political pressure. The political pressure is on Biden. He knows inflation is virtu- virtually the number one worry. Uh, in almost all polls of Americans. So, you know, uh, it's not unemployment anymore. It's not jobs anymore. It's inflation. And uh, if he doesn't respond to that, then uh, the Dems are even in deeper trouble than they already are in. So I think he's got to uh, bow to those uh, political pressures. Did you see the uh, the German PPI today, where it was uh, eighteen eighteen percent, the highest r- range since like nineteen fifty one? That that was a sort oh, of striking chart. I actually tra- did not. That is, uh, I, I did not look at those numbers. But it, it, inflation is around the world. It's it, and and part of it is supply problems around the world. But part of it is that there was expansion everywhere around the world that didn't get mopped up, and so here. You're you're really getting, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of also you're getting. I mean, look at, you know, oil has certainly come down a little recently, but the dollar has been strong. Um, and uh, and so in, in these other countries like the European countries and other countries, they're experiencing a, a rise that is much greater and particularly natural gas. As you know, which is only four and a half to five dollars per uh, decatherm here in the U.S., is uh, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars per decatherm in Europe, um, and um, uh, yeah, and and uh, as you know, they're a hostage, uh, particularly natural gas, to Eastern, um, to Russia and other Eastern Europe, uh, European countries, and as a result, uh, their heating bills are 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 are, are perhaps going to be astronomical. This we're 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 somewhat cushioned from this, even though we also are certainly having a rise here. Uh, in I mean, the natural gas is nearly twice the low that it was before, but it's not 10 times as high as it is in Europe. Well, very good, Professor. Thank you for starting the show with some, some great commentary. Thank you very much. Um, we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. We, uh, we're going to turn our conversation to uh, our guest for the hour. We have Damon Ficklin of Poland Capital. Uh, he's a portfolio manager and analyst and head of strategy for the Poland Global Growth Fund. Damon, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you having me on today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, before we get into sort of details on your strategies and, and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to Poland, and, and, and a little bit about Poland itself as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so I guess 
background on Poland Capital. The firm's founded more than 40 years ago, and we've been managing concentrated, high-quality growth portfolios for more than 30 years. So we'll probably get a little bit into the global growth strategy and how we execute that today. Um, but if you kind of widen the lens, we've actually been applying this same investment philosophy and process to a U.S. flagship strategy for more than 30 years. And um, yeah, this is really what we do. This is the DNA of Poland Capital, concentrated high quality growth. I've been at Poland Capital, I'm in my 19th year now. So I'm one of the uh, most tenured members of the firm and uh, of the investment team. We have multiple investment teams, actually. Um, I'm the head of the large company growth team based in Boca Raton, Florida, managing you know, focused U.S. strategies, focused ex-U.S. strategies, international, and then managing a global strategy. And then we have teams in Boston focused on small and mid-cap companies and a team in London focused on emerging markets, all applying a very similar approach. My background, I, I um, was an undergraduate uh, accounting student, got a master's in accounting, worked uh, in, in tax for several years with Pricewaterhouse. Went to the University of Chicago to get an MBA and use that really as a stepping stone to get into the asset management business, which was my long-term aspiration. Served a, served a short stint at Morningstar as an equity analyst as they were building that department. And then saw the opportunity at Poland Capital back in 2003. Was happy to join the team. I'm, I'm a native of Florida. Poland Capital is based and headquartered in Boca Raton, Florida. So it was an alignment of both the kind of geographic preference and uh, investment philosophy, and the rest is, is history. I joined as an analyst, uh, went on to become a portfolio manager, first of our flagship U.S. product, and now focused exclusively on the global strategy, and now I lead the team as well. That's, uh, I, well, I don't know if I knew that story. Uh, I grew up in Boca, went to Spanish River High, uh, Calusa, okay. Omni. So I, I know your neck of the woods very, very well down there. So uh, I'll be down for next week. Um, it's, a, it's a funny, small, small interconnected world there, Damon. So tell us a little, who did you, if you think about as, as you build growth portfolios, is there a father of the growth family of investing that you guys have followed or studied under, or is there a sort of spiritual leader there for growth investing that you guys follow closely? Yeah, you're, you're, you might think this answer is a little odd, but um, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, Bill Fisher, really a lot of the value investing greats were what David Poland, the founder of the firm, originally studied uh, in creating the philosophy and process. And and really all of us um, have really value roots. I was, despite going to the University of Chicago, which is known more for efficient market hypothesis, uh, efficient market theory, I, I was more um, a Warren Buffett junkie focused on the behavioral sides of the market while at Chicago. And, um, and everyone else in the investment team has some sort of value roots, perhaps actually managed money in a value-oriented way before joining Poland Capital. So we're taking... Um, a value-oriented approach, but applying it into a growth framework. And, and I'm sure you know, you know quite well that uh, in Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, if you read uh, Chapter 20 in the Margin of Safety, there is actually a, a, a small section in there where it talks about applying growth expectations conservatively applied can actually create a margin of safety. So that's, that's in essence where we connect with value philosophy we're not trying to buy dollar bills for 50 cents, but rather trying to buy dollar bills that we're quite confident based on the competitive advantages, the strength of the businesses, that they will become two, three, four, five dollars of value in time. Yeah. So I get the the Buffett analogy on quality. Um, you know, when, when I talk about the quality factor, that, that's become one of the sort of popular factors that complements value very often. Uh, and I, I, I do, I point to Buffett as like, you know, the prime commentator on, I buy high return on equity, high return on capital businesses that use little debt. And, you know, he'd rather buy, you know, good companies, which he defines as high return on equity companies at a, at a good price than sort of cheap sort of distress, what he used to call cigar, butt you know, type of value stocks. Yeah. Um, what's the connection between growth and quality for you? Are there metrics that you are striving for? Is Would you say your portfolio is more quality, more growth, combinations? How, how do you look at the two? 
Yeah, I think we're really looking for both. But I, I guess let me back up and, and give you kind of a, an idea of what we're looking for as a starting off point or a initial kind of screen. We're, we're looking for companies with return on equity of 20% or greater, so a couple standard deviations above normal, better than average earnings and free cash flow growth. So think about high single-digit to low-double-digit growth is kind of the lower end of the bar. We have some companies growing much faster than that, but we have some that are grinding out low double-digit growth and with a great degree of safety and ballast. And we think that's that has a space in the growth portfolio as well. Um, we're looking for companies with typically high and improving margins, low levels of debt. We're not big fans of leverage. Uh, and then finally, real organic revenue growth. So if you're aiming for, you know, double-digit earnings per share growth over five, 10, you know, many-year horizon, you really need some underlying internal engine rather than relying on M&A and some other sort of strategy to drive that growth. So those are the five things that we're really looking for as kind of a jumping off point. And, um, and when you get back to kind of quality and growth, I think they're connected, right? Um, clearly, you can have high quality that's not growing all that much. Um, but what matters to us, and if you kind of think about what we're looking for within those metrics, it's truly competitively advantaged businesses with outstanding economics in an ongoing growth opportunity, right? And, and so as we think about investing in quality growth companies, we're happy to pay higher prices when we can find those higher growth opportunities, but we're not going to bend on the quality. In, in other words, you have to believe in the advantage of the business. You have to believe in its sustainability. We're not going to reach it growth just for growth's sake. So no, growth has been on a fantastic run. Um, it's been like a 15-year run for, for some of these high-growth stocks. How do you think about the valuations on your portfolio today? If you, if you say the typical stock that is that 20% ROE growing those growth rates that you mentioned, is the multiples expanding? Are you getting nervous on the multiples on any of your baskets? Or how do you think about the, the overall multiples to the, the valuation multiples to your equation? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the first thing I would do is just acknowledge that the, the market valuation is a, in the market as a whole has risen, right? Um, we've seen yeah. certainly stronger performance in the markets than we've seen from a fundamental basis across the broader market. Um, but to kind of zone in on our strategies and our approach, you have to look at the individual companies and what are how are they doing in this environment. So we've seen a little bit of multiple expansion across our portfolio, so not too dissimilar from what you've seen in the broader market. I think the key difference is um, our portfolios have actually been delivering the fundamental results to support that compound rate of growth for the most part, right? So it hasn't just been returns driven by multiple expansion. It's been returns driven by really strong mid-teens underlying earnings per share growth with a little bit of multiple expansion. Um, so we're mindful uh, of balancing and rebalancing the portfolio as needed. Um, and you really have to kind of, as I said, look at each individual situation. Some of our companies could trade for 40, 50 times or even more. Uh, but if the company is delivering 20, 25, 30% underlying earnings per share growth, what looks like a high multiple based on the next 12 months becomes very reasonable very fast if the business is delivering and the stock's not participating. So, We'll, we'll own some of those types of businesses where we really believe in the fundamental results and the future opportunity, but we balance that with companies at that other end of the spectrum. As I said, not all of our companies are growing at that high rate. We also own a company like an Abbott Labs or a Siemens Health Ears. These businesses aren't necessarily going to drive 15% earnings per share growth year after year after year, but we think they can drive solid double-digit earnings per share growth over time through good times, through tough times and at reasonable valuation. So when we put the portfolios together as a whole, we're getting to what we think is a very reasonable valuation, a really strong growth profile, and importantly, competitive advantage under each one of these businesses. And so I guess to not yeah. belabor the answer, but just to give one more thought, you know, the way we think about it, we, we have no foresight into what the market's going to do over the next 12 or 24 months, any better than you or anyone else. Um, we can we can make our uh, opinion or ideas, but the reality is none of us know. And none of us predicted COVID happening the months before it happened, but it, it's here. Um, but if you were to say that the market is going to see, you know, 20% multiple compression over the next, you know, few years, and our portfolios would see the same, we feel like we're in a really, really strong position. If you're geared for mid-team type growth profile, that's a double in five years, right? And so 
even if over the course of the next five years, the multiple in the market in our portfolio were to decline 20%, and I'm just picking a number here, we're still going to see a strong double-digit investment return. Apply that same framework over a market, right? If you see, and we haven't seen much earnings growth at all, but let's just say the MSCI Acqui as a benchmark is going to grow earnings 6% per year, which is kind of a long-term average and then you see 20% multiple compression over that five-year horizon, you're not going to get a very good investment outcome. So that's the way we think about it. We can't control market valuation. We can control what we own, and we make sure we're not reaching, right, and that the portfolio is not unreasonably valued. But to us, it's really more about the underlying performance of the individual businesses and therefore the aggregate portfolio that's going to drive our outcome over time. We're talking with Damon Ficklin, who's a portfolio manager, head of strategy for the Poland Global Growth Fund. When you look at, you know, besides growth working, which, you know, the U.S. market tends to be viewed as the growthier region, um, we have the fangs, you know, the are there any fangs around the world? But as you think about U.S. versus global and your role in the global growth strategy, how do you think about U.S. allocations there? How do you think about, do you want to stand up for the ex-U.S. growth stocks? Uh, what do you think about them? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the first thing to, to highlight is we really are bottom-up rather than top-down. So I don't want to give the, the point of view that we're starting with, should we be overweight U.S., underweight you know, Europe, or so forth and so on. It really is about identifying what we think are roughly 25 of the best growth companies, highest quality growth companies in the world, and constructing the portfolio. Um, I'd say since the inception of the global strategy, we've, we've vacillated between, call it 50% to up to 65 plus percent exposure to North America, which is primarily U.S. exposure. Um, but we've been pretty balanced. We think there's opportunities around the world. This is another advantage of managing a concentrated portfolio. We don't have to find you know, dozens and dozens of ideas in every geography, but really just the best. Today, um, in this year, I'd say we've actually tended towards higher exposure to North America. Again, just a function of our decisions in terms of uh, new, new additions to the portfolio or where we've added, where we've seen the most opportunity. So we're a little overweight North America. Of course, the exposure of North America within the index is growing as well, right? Because yeah. the U.S. market has been... Galloping. I remember it was I remember it was fifty fifty, and now we were looking at the other day, and it's already up to sixty forty in the acqui. I mean, if, if not even a little slightly higher. I mean, yeah, growing. absolutely. So I, I'd say we're we're um, we're a little higher exposure in North America, but really we aim to be balanced over time, and really just going where we find the opportunities. And there's some great companies outside the U.S. that we're happy to have in our portfolio. You mentioned Siemens as sort of the slow and steadier type earnings growth, but any other foreign stocks that you say are sort of prime examples of type of companies you guys, your, your team likes to own for the foreign markets? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have Siemens in the portfolio, Accenture. We own LVMH, Aon, SAP, CSL, based in Parkville, Australia. Um, we, we also owned up until June, July timeframe, July actually, um, Tencent and Alibaba in China. So we, we had um, meaningful exposure in China up until the middle of this year. And then some of the regulatory uh, unfoldings and events that took place there really drove a lot of debate on the team, made us think hard about where is the easiest and best opportunity to drive the outcome we're looking for for clients. So we sold those positions. That's part of what's um, maybe tipped our exposure a little bit more towards North America recently versus history. Um, so there's some. We, we talk a lot about those. I mean, the the, the, the that is definitely generating. I I definitely would say we've been overweight China conversations on our team as well. Um, we do a lot of emerging markets in in China focused uh, research. Um, I guess if you were to share some of the debate side, I, I guess maybe we could we could go pro and con on. You know, why is it getting closer to the end of their what what whatever that you want to call it regulatory crackdown regulatory uncertainty. Um, the actions they were taking, the delay of the anti-PO, I'm sure was not helpful for your Alibaba kind of thinking. But what, as you think about the longer term, you, you like the stocks because they are way above average growers. And then the question is, are they quote unquote investable now? Or are they, you know, changing the profit mix? What, what do you think would be a signal that you'd watch to get back in, assuming they can still deliver the growth rates that they were delivering before? Yeah. Yeah, so it's that's a tough question to answer because kind of watching regulation unfold is you know you don't know when the end it, it yeah. will occur. 
Um, what I would what I would say is, you know, exiting Tencent and Alibaba with and the global growth strategy, it was not a call on China. It wasn't saying China is uninvestable, and it wasn't even a decision to say that Tencent and Alibaba are no longer great businesses. I think they are. Um, the the issue from our perspective is the degree of difficulty increased and the uncertainty around the growth profiles increased, right? And so if you go to 30,000 feet, what are we trying to do? We're trying to drive, you know, mid-teens type earnings per share growth over time, which we think will drive the investment return and outcome over time. And we're trying to do that in the most predictable and easiest way possible, frankly, right? Um, you get no extra points in this business for a degree of difficulty. And so as we saw what was unfolding in China with the after-school um, tutoring market essentially being eliminated, right, um, and then seeing kind of regulation spiral into other areas of the economy, and importantly, Internet uh, technology and property and, and other segments as well, we just recognized that, look, this is, this is harder. <laughs> this is harder to predict, harder to understand what the outcomes are. I think these businesses have very, very, very strong positions. Right? We think they're going to continue to grow over time. But as you look at uh, both Tencent and Alibaba, you know, at the beginning of this year, Alibaba said it was going to invest all marginal profits into investment opportunities. Um, Tencent said it was going to invest half of its marginal profit growth into investment opportunities. At the beginning of the year, I would have said, uh, yeah, they compete in competitive markets. There's competitors coming from every angle. They should be doing this. It solidify their platform, increase the duration of their growth. Um, but as we saw a lot of this regulation unfolding and really the pressure to focus on common prosperity in, in conjunction with driving your business, can't help but wonder if part of this is, is, uh, is that, <laughs> is, is you know, recognizing the environment they're operating in. And so when we put all that together, um, this isn't precise, but I would say when we put all that together, I would say the, the growth expectation that I would have had, at least for Tencent and Alibaba at the beginning of the year, is probably lower for the next set of years, right? At the very least, in this type of environment where the government is pushing common prosperity, where regulations are coming into play, it's not going to be all that popular to drive your margins higher and, and really push growth. Um, and so we look at the, the, the risks from a regulatory point of view. We look at the challenges around the growth profile for the near term. It's frankly just an easier to find that growth opportunity somewhere else. And so one company I didn't mention, which we actually added uh, a meaningful position to, was ICON, um, the largest contract research organization in the world based in, in Ireland. And, you know, while every business has its own issues, its own challenges, um, this business is quite solid in the way the world is evolving, the way clinical trial work is evolving, they're in an incredibly strong position. We think they can drive, you know, mid to high teens earnings per share growth for the next several years. And we don't have any kind of China or regulatory issues to deal with. So it's, it's really just um, a practical approach of delivering the right results for our clients over time to drive the outcome in the easiest way possible. This has been a great start to our conversation. Um, we're talking with Damon Ficklin, who's a strategist, portfolio manager at Pooling Capital. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Um, let's talk about some of the the sort of narrowness, I say, or concentration, as you guys talk about, of of trying to get a basket. Uh, it's sort of this passive indexing, holding hundreds of thousands of you know hundreds to thousands of securities in a, a global growth mandate uh, that you guys are focused on. You might hold thirty. How do you think about that 30 sizing positions, concentration, you know, hearing your godfather at Buffett, Buffett likes concentration, but uh, how, how do you think about uh, this type of concentrated approach? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess a couple of thoughts there. One, you know, at, at a market level, we were talking a little bit about growth and valuation at a market level. You know, in an index, you have a whole host of different companies. You have great companies, you have good companies, you have okay companies, and you have some not so great companies, right? So it's a, it's a basket of everything, essentially. And, and so with one of the advantages of a concentrative approach is we work very diligently to only own what we think are the highest quality and highest growth companies over time. And so that's really a big advantage from our point of view. Um, and and really, we, we've been executing this investment philosophy and process for more than three decades. So we have it honed, and, and we know exactly what we're looking for. We talked through some of the guardrails 
the kind of initial things that we're screening out to think through, but it's really about fundamental research and in, in finding the best companies in the world and taking meaningful positions. It's very, very aligned with, you know, Warren Buffett approach to investing. And we've also seen from, from an academic point of view, um, you know, there's been many studies that after 16, 17, 18 holdings, the, the marginal diversification benefit of that additional holding becomes, you know, much, much smaller. And so it was, it was thinking from both a, a practical point of view and an academic point of view that David Poland built the philosophy and process. And, and really, it's not part of Poland's DNA. This is just what we do. And so while at different points in time, like, say, in the, the bottom of the, the global financial crisis back, back in the 08, 09 timeframe, we thought, well, everything's on sale. Maybe we should own 40 companies at this point. Um, but it was very natural to stay concentrated and have meaningful positions in our best ideas. So we think it's a, a real advantage. And, and not just from a return-generating point of view, I think that's the obvious angle, right? If you own the highest quality, higher growth companies, that's going to drive a differential result, excess returns over time. But we think concentration also allows you to manage risk. Um, and, I, and I would dare say, uh, you know, reduce risk over time. Um, and what I mean by that is because by only owning companies that you feel quite confident in, that you think have very high advantages that are sustainable, we believe that over time, that, that actually reduces the risk profile. So it depends on how you define risk, right? Um, concentration, obviously, that portfolio can be out of step and not uh, track along with the broader markets. So if varying from the index is your definition of risk, then concentration certainly can bring some risk with it. But if your definition of risk is the permanent impairment of capital and loss of investment assets over time, then we think by focusing on only the best, you're actually reducing that over the long term. So that's really the way we think about it. Um, and that's why finding truly competitively advantaged businesses is key, right? It's, it's being able to be confident in the future of that business in competition, not eroding their economics, not eroding their growth opportunity, and not creating new risks that you, you want to avoid in investing. As you think about the... Um the sectors that come with growth investing, like do you do you think about relative tilts? Do you, is it mostly you know you mentioned just being a bottoms up focused, but but taking concentration, you also obviously have different types of risk uh, and and growth stocks certainly overweight the tech stocks today these days. Um, is there a maximum you'd you'd want to go into tech? Um, can you get to fifty percent, forty percent? How much do you think about uh, sort of tech concentration versus uh, sort of the other the other sectors? Yeah, so so we for the global growth strategy, we say about fifty percent is as high of an exposure as we would have from a sector point of view. So that's pretty wide berth, and I'd say really only in technology um, do we challenge that. Um, we have tended to be overweight technology, healthcare, consumer companies over time um, because that's where we find a preponderance of really good ideas of companies that meet our investment criteria that we think have sustainability to them, whether that's driven by, you know, technology innovation, what R&D budgets, whether that's driven by scale, whether that's network effects, there's all different kinds of things that come into play as to what would make businesses attractive in those areas. But we tend to find a lot there. We haven't historically owned energy, materials, telecom, utilities, um, for a variety of reasons, either they're capital intensive, they're commoditized, or a combination of the two. Um, and we have owned, uh, have had exposure to financials, but you won't typically find us in a traditional bank or insurance companies. It's more kind of liability-like financials, if you will, toll bridges like a Visa or MasterCard. Um, so that, that, that tends to be where we find the most ideas, but to your point, it really is bottom-up wherever we're finding the most uh, opportunity. Now, so we, 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 we I, I started off earlier by saying it's been a 15-year great run for growth, and some of it's been a period where inflation hasn't been so hot. Um, you know, Professor Siegel started the show with his view, inflation's going to be hot for some time, like a three- to five-year thing. This is not like a transitory thing. Would would a view on inflation, A, scare you on growth stocks? You heard his narrative saying he likes value stocks because of the inflation. But do you, do you think there is something to that, that inflation rising rates could cause some pressure for your type of growth style um, and or and maybe the, the well I'll start there and then we can sort of follow up with that question okay yeah yeah I'd say um 
without without trying to make any prediction on, on the path of uh, inflation going forward, we're certainly not macroeconomists, but but we are reading the papers, trying to understand what's going on in the world, just just like everyone else. But I I think that a high quality, uh, high growth portfolio is actually a good place to be to manage through inflationary environments. And what what do I mean by that? So if you if you're a commoditized business, right, and inflation rears its head, your cost of operating goes up. And you probably cannot pass that on, right? By definition, if you raise your prices, the customers are just going to go to your competitors. So either your revenue growth slows or declines or your profits compress or some combination thereof if you're in a commoditized business and inflation occurs. We are not investing in commoditized businesses in any way, shape, or form. Every business that we're investing in is offering differentiated products, uh, differentiated or value-added services, and so as, as a kind of a general statement, these businesses are in the position to pass through pricing. For one, most of our companies aren't all that resource intensive, whether that be labor or just, you know, regular inputs. Um, and to the degree that they are, you know, say like an Accenture, which is a really labor intensive business, Icon's a, a labor intensive business. There are other examples within our portfolio. They're producing or providing, I should say, um, very high value added services. So there's really not a, a challenge or a problem in pushing through the pricing because they're, help, in Accenture's case, they're helping companies transform, right? Moving to the digital uh, future that they need to evolve to. There's value in that. Um, and so the long and short of it is um, in the aggregate, our companies are well positioned. One, they don't have as much cost inflation as companies have on average. And two, they have better than average pricing power. So we feel good about their ability to weather through uh, an inflationary environment. And then kind of the cousin of inflation is, you know, interest rates, right? That's where the real um, question mark come into play. The, the longer that inflation is with us, the, the more likely inflation expectations set in, then inflation becomes a real thing. And now we need to adjust interest rates to manage the, the environment. And so, I'll stop there, but I'd say there's, you know, an extension of the question as it relates to interest rates beyond just inflation. Yeah, that, that all comes back to valuation in, in some of those questions. Are you hearing, we, we, we often talk about sort of these quality stocks that have high returns in capital, high return equity, as you point out, um, good profit margins, them being in some ways, and, and I think Buffett's talked about quality stocks in these inflationary environments being, your point, sort of is a lot of what he talks about being able to sort of protect the margins and grow the prices because of pricing power. Are you seeing anything in your, in your portfolios as people go through earnings season? What do you think the labor supply dynamics, how are they seeing wage issues, margin issues going into the next few years on this sort of global supply chain? And, and what, what's, what's your sense on margin trends in some of these high quality businesses right now? Yeah, so I'd say for the most part, our portfolio holdings are, are weathering straight through this and there's not much of an impact. So I gave the example of Accenture, you know, employing hundreds of thousands of people, so people-heavy business, it's all about the people, um, but they're high-wage high uh, earners and they're producing value-added services. So there's really not much of an issue or a challenge in passing that forward. Think about Aon, it's a, it's a large um insurance broker, also people-heavy business, but insurance actually benefits. The, the more assets inflate, the more insurance you need to cover the value of your asset. So they're not really seeing a, a major impact. I think inflation, if anything, is a, a marginal positive for that business. There are some businesses. Um, we also own Amazon and we own Starbucks. And I'd say those are two examples where they, they have you know, meaningful labor forces, and they're usually at the lower end of the wage scale, right? So they're they're certainly not making minimum wage at these businesses, but um, they're not uh, high-paid employees per se. And so we're seeing both of those companies raising the, their average wage across their workforce. That these two companies are both very proactive, right? <laughs> they need people. They need quality people. Um, in the case of Amazon, they, they're literally hiring like a hundred thousand people in the next quarter to get ready for the holiday seasons and the flux up in demand. Um, given the rapid growth in online commerce and, and some of the challenges they see in the labor markets and supply chains, right? They're trying to invest ahead to get 
to get that under control. So we are seeing pockets of impact, you know, when it comes to wages. But by and large, we aren't seeing a big impact. The other company that I can kind of draw from, you know, Nestle is also in our portfolio. And they're really um, seeing, finally, for the first time in probably three, four, five years, some price inflation across their portfolio. So a moderate amount of inflation actually gives some consumer product goods company the, the room to pass through a little bit of pricing, right? These companies have struggled um, to deliver the same type of a top line growth that they have historically over the past several years because it's been in a, a no or very low inflationary environment. And in that type of environment, it's just hard <laughs> to keep passing through any pricing. But this gives a little bit of cover and they have real brands, right? They lead in coffee, they lead in pet food, they lead in important categories and they have, you know, favored brands. And so it really depends on the business. But the long and short answer is, um, you know, we're seeing pockets of impact, but it's really at the lower cost labor. Um, but in the aggregate, not seeing much of an impact at all so far across our portfolio. We're talking with Damon Ficklin, who is a portfolio manager at Pooling Capital, about his growth style, concentrated quality and growth style. It's, it's interesting, Damon. I might uh, I might now have an inside news source, somebody that we just hired. At, you don't think in financial services you'd hire anybody from Amazon, but actually we have a brand new employee <laughs> who just came from Amazon. So maybe we'll have to get her on the show to talk about her experience working there at some point. Not sure if she has a confidentiality agreement or anything, but that's a uh, that'd be a funny story. Um, the, um, if, if you think about the, the other trends you all are focused on at, at Poland, um, you know, the, the digital transformation I know is one, uh, you talked about some of the, the portfolio holdings like, uh, like an SAP and Amazon and other tech oriented digital focused stocks. How do you guys define digital transformation? What are the type of exposures you're, you're looking for in, in your portfolios? Yeah. And, and, and I should say, um, you know, what I would kind of label as digital transformation, it's been occurring well before the pandemic, right? A lot of these trends, whether it be digital advertising, whether it be digital payments, whether it be digital dentistry, whether um, a whole host That's of examples. That's a tough examples. one. That's a, yeah. Work on your teeth. I, uh, it's hard to see how they could uh, do that remotely. <laughs> well, uh, we own Align Technology in the portfolio, and, and actually during the pandemic, they rolled out a lot of um, mobile applications to actually allow the doctor to continue the treatment plan to check in with patients or to make appointments remotely. Um, so it's still early days, um, but they, they did a lot of things that actually allowed dentists and orthodontists to keep treating their patients. If you were um, trying to start a new case with wires and brackets or traditional braces, it wasn't a very good time. And the early pandemic is the last thing anybody wanted to do was go uh, have somebody else put their hands in your mouth at that moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so practices have been shifting more to digital dentistry uh, for a while, but the pandemic was actually kind of a flashpoint that made them realize there's an existential risk here. I, I need to be adopting some of the technologies and the capabilities that exist in the marketplace. And that really um, put some wind behind the line's sales. So that's why I, through digital dentistry in there as example, not, not something that people think about, but it's really yeah. occurring across industries. Um, and, and so that the first point is this has been happening for a long time, right? And the obvious, whether it's online commerce through Amazon or others, uh, digital advertising through, uh, for, for example, uh, Alphabet um, and the Google. Uh, Adobe is a leader in digital marketing. That's been kind of occurring for many, many years. And then you have this move to online and omni-channel. That, too, was well in motion before the pandemic occurred, but the pandemic uh, basically accelerated that shift, right? Fortunately, we own Nike and we own Adidas, and both companies have been investing very much ahead of the curve in the online and omni-channel experience. And so in the height of pan pandemic, when stores were closed, it was definitely kind of a first order negative. If 70% of your business is coming through brick and mortar doors and none of them are open, that's not good. But it also gave both companies the license to accelerate, step on the gas and really put all their investment dollars behind online and, you know, driving that channel. And that's actually making them better businesses, frankly, right? They, they make higher margins. They have a direct connection in relationship to the consumer. They get feedback on what's working, what people are interested in. 
So, so many kind of features that, that occur as a result of shifting to a direct online relationship with the consumer. So I would put all of these things in the category of digital transformation. And I, I think we were climbing that S-curve before. We took a couple of years up, jump up that S-curve, but I think it's going to keep going. This wasn't a just a reaction to the pandemic environment and we're going to go back to brick and mortars. It's just going to continue going in our in our mind. So now some of these digital transformation stocks, like the the cloud stocks in particular, and we focus on cloud at, at Wisdom Tree too. So you know we we have a little bit of experience there. But what what if you said anything? They, the, some of those pre like prime cloud stocks are some of the most expensive stocks in the market, highest price to sales multiples, like really the extremes. Um, but they but they're growing thirty forty percent. So they're not even just mid teens. They're they're in the the. You know, the rule of 40 kind of stocks. What, what yeah. would you, would those be things that you look at? Do they cross the Rubicon of too expensive for your team? How do you think about those? Yeah. So it's, um, I guess there's no silver bullet in terms of what's the right price or wrong price. You really have to go one company at a time. As I was saying before, we own some higher multiple stocks. You look at Adobe, it's, you know, roughly 45 times forward earnings. Um, if you look at Amazon, it's 50 times plus, you know, aligned technology is the same, 50, 50 times earnings. If, if you can um, develop the confidence that that business is going to drive 25, 30% type growth over time, that's not an unreasonable multiple. Um, but we do need to have a high degree of confidence that needs to be supported by sound fundamental research. And, that, and we need to rest that upon true competitive advantages. Um, and so not just kind of leaning into growth for growth's sake, as I said yeah. at the beginning, there are many high growth companies. The key is owning the ones that are going to be able to maintain and sustain that profile over time, despite competition. The world's a competitive place. And so we want businesses that, that are going to deliver good growth, but have the sustainability and staying power well beyond the next five years. Is um it, when you get to the size of Amazon, like that's one of the most interesting, you know, in terms of the yeah. high multiple, high growth. Is that how do you gain the confidence that they can keep growing at the the rates that deserve the premium multiples? Yeah, so um, they serve really, really big markets. I guess is the short answer. Um, so not only are they a leader in in online commerce. Um, that's been the case for a very, very long time. That That's a fairly low margin business, frankly. Right? And, and part of the reason we haven't uh, owned it uh, over its whole life, it hasn't always produced the greatest economics, hasn't always met our investment criteria, but clearly a great business. What I think has changed and what gives us confidence looking forward from here is they've leveraged that position uh, in e-commerce to create a really uh, outstanding business in AWS. Um, it's proven. It's scaled. Uh, we think we're in still early days in terms of uh, cloud infrastructure and the shift to cloud infrastructure. They're a clear leader there. The economics are good. Um, it's growing at a high rate. And um, then I would also add advertising, right? They, they had such a, um, a rich set of inventory to advertise against with their online uh, commerce business. And then a few years ago, they really started to flip the switch and turn advertising on. So they went from really not relevant in online advertising to quite relevant multi-billion dollar business growing at a very, very high rate with outstanding economics today. And so as you look at those kind of two new pillars, they're more attractive businesses, frankly, than their historical business from an economic and margin and growth perspective. And so just as those two businesses naturally keep growing, they're going to grow at a faster rate than the core online commerce business. Um, we believe it's going to drive margins up over time and, you know, enhance the overall economics of, of Amazon. So despite its large scale, we think they actually have the, the ability and opportunity to grow earnings at call it a roughly 30% rate for the next many years to come. So that, that really supports even if you put aside the online e-commerce business, AWS and advertising alone could probably support a lot of Amazon's valuation today. Very interesting. Um, so we've had a, a very nice broad-ranging conversation across different elements of your portfolios. As you think about sort of sort of closing topics uh, for the for the show here, what what um, 
what are some other big picture or any any closing thoughts from Poland's view of the world? How you guys manage money that you would want people to to come across from from what you got, what you all focus on? Yeah, I mean, I I think from our point of view, it's it's all about the underlying business. So we're we're not you know stock pickers per se. We're executing a very disciplined, very proven, very fundamental process of constructing high quality growth portfolios and. We've been very successful at consistently constructing that portfolio to drive that earnings growth over time. So the market's going to do its thing. During short periods of time, we go through cycles, value versus growth, inflation rears its head, and inflation's irrelevant. Um, and we go through these cycles over and over and over. And I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not saying they're not real. They are very real. Um, but when you stretch that horizon out to three years, five years, seven years, beyond, a lot of that noise fades away and it becomes very much about the underlying fundamental results. Did the companies grow or did they not? We didn't really get into it, but we talked about how growth has outperformed value so so handily for the last 15 years. The results are there. <laughs> you have, in this past 15 years, you've had companies that are growing, companies that are not. The companies that are growing have seen their value increase. The companies that are not have not. Um, so it's not as if this has to shift. Um, in our minds, this is what it's all about over time. And so, and we think this is, it's doable to invest in this way. While it's really hard to predict what's going to unfold in the market or what's going to happen with inflation or interest rates or all these other factors of Chinese regulation over the course of the next six to 12 months, when you isolate the world down to some of the best businesses, most competitively advantaged business, you study them well, you watch what's going on, you pay a fair price and you hold them. It's a very doable exercise, and it delivers really good results for clients over time. And so that's what we're about, and that's what we think. Uh, that, that's what we think delivers solid results for our clients over the long term. Very nice talking to a fellow Boca Raton native here. Um, you know, it's always good to connect. Uh, any f- places that people can find, stay in touch with your work, and, and how to follow Poland. Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing is to go to our website. I mean, that's a, a easy entry point. You can see all of the wonderful people that work at Poland Capital to pick the right person to connect with, someone in our distribution team. Um, but but would love to have a conversation if you want to learn more about Poland Capital. Damon Ficklin, Portfolio Manager, Head Strategist at uh, the Global Growth Strategy. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.